Welcome. This is Talking Joy, creating joy, inner peace, and authentic connections. My name is Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and I am founder of lifestyle brand Talking Joy. As a certified spiritual director, I have been leading groups with the power of words, the strength of positivity, and the gift of joy. During our time together, our focus will be on simple spiritual practices that can be applied to your everyday life with the wisdom and support of others. Talking Joy talks to help you realize your value. I am so glad you're here. Simple, joyful, fun. Let's get talking. All right. Well, Rebecca Laird, welcome to the Talking Joy podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Um, I'd like to say, I guess we're old friends. I've known you for, um, and I know this because I met you when my third child was born and she'll be 18 in February. So I've known you for, for 18 years which is hard to believe. That's um, right. I met you uh, in the months before she was born. Yes. And uh, you have been to me, um, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. You've been uh, a friend, a spiritual director, a pastor, a professor, <laughs> and, um, you know, just a valued companion along my journey. And I've, I've learned a lot from you Um and forever grateful for, for our friendship and all that you've taught me. And, uh, and so that's why I'm so glad to have you here today because others can um, get to, uh, to hear some of your wisdom and, and uh, you know, we're gonna talk a little bit about your travels and, and mystics and um, you know, some people might not even know what a mystic is. Um, so if I thought we could start, you could just tell a little bit about your work and where you are and what you do, and then we can, we can move into some of that, so. Well, Pam, it's such a, yeah, distinct pleasure to be talking to you. It feels like uh, an ongoing conversation that others might pop into because it's been such a pleasure to have conversations about the spiritual life, about life in general, and share the path for, um, as you said, 18 years. I'm now in San Diego. We knew each other when I was on the East Coast. But for the last 10 years, I've been um, teaching at my alma mater, my undergraduate alma mater in San Diego, and I teach in our School of Theology. And the main thing that I do is I, I teach um, students who sense a call, a vocational call to ministry in a wide variety of ways, whether it's through spiritual direction, chaplaincy, ministry, social work. And then I also teach um, general education classes. And the one that's probably nearest and dearest to my heart is a class called Women in the Christian Tradition. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about Julian or uh, Teresa and the mystics, uh, my ongoing love for uh, these people, many of them women uh, from Europe in uh, the late middle ages into the early more modern period, um, they have just been fascinating mentors to me. And so uh, when I first discovered them, I think they became what I like to say my friends from the Middle Ages or my friends from the 16th century, because I really have found some uh, support, I guess, some modeling and just some uh, courage to recognize that um, people have sought after God and uh, done so in some really extraordinarily unusual ways around um, in their own context. And that's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I find that interesting, too. I mean, I was reading up about uh, Julian of Norwich um, this morning, who you actually introduced me to years ago. And um, what a brave woman of her time to be such a seeker. And I, and also, I think that, that hearing about women, you know, they, they didn't have all of the freedoms that we have now. Um, what a brave thing to seek God in such a passionate way and then to write about it um, and then for it to last <laughs> so long that, you know, that it reached my eyes and then my heart um, in, in such a deep way. Yeah, when you think of Julian, I mean, that's not even her name. We don't even yes. know what her name was, right? So to know that this anonymous woman who lived in a time of, of plague, I mean, she's been very on my mind sometimes in the last few months because, you know, we're not the first ones to live through troubled times. And so uh, to look back and see how did uh, someone like this pay attention to the um, 
work of God, the presence of God, hold, hold on to hope mm-hmm. in difficult circumstances. Um, and then to not only know that she had these visions, but have the, the courage to write them down, uh, to write down visionary experiences, direct encounters with God. And that's what mysticism is. It is an understanding of direct uh, enlightenment or direct relationship with God rather than mediated. And so for um, Julian to take these revelations and to um, write them, to ponder them, to rewrite them, to then share them. And she did so from um, a cell, really. (laughs) We think of cells in the terms of a prison, but she chose to be really um, walled in to a little square room uh, where she felt that all of the world was right there already. She didn't have to go seeking after God. God could be found right there. Mm. Isn't that true for all of us? We can wander and wander and wander, but you, <laughs> we can come right back to where we are. <laughs> yeah. And what we need to know. And so relatable to our times, you know, the living through a pandemic. Um, and uh, she was um, an agorist. Is that how you say that? Uh-huh. Yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about what, what is that and, and how, what, would, what did her life look like? Um, yeah, well, we don't know a lot about her. Most of what we know about her comes from another woman, woman writer called Marjorie Kemp, who wander around and travel. And she speaks of stopping in Norwich and visiting this anchoress. And um, I think my understanding of, of an anchoress is, is probably best described by telling you a little bit about the place where Julian was. Yeah. I visited there a few years ago. And it's uh, walking into a little village church to the right-hand side of the um, altar area. There's just a little room that's built on. And uh, an anchoress in this instance was someone who came and she lived her life in that room attached to the church. And when we were there, the um, priest came in and this is the story he told me, which I think is powerful and so different from our understanding. But he said that Julian had either lost all of her family or had had this sense of call, we don't really know, Mm -hmm. uh, to be an anchoress. And that meant that she would come live her life attached to the church as if she had died to her life. He said she probably actually heard what would be the equivalent of a a memorial service given in her honor because she was setting aside the life that she had lived to devote her life entirely to praying, anchoring in prayer, Mm. life of this congregation, the life of God in this place. So she basically became an intercessory prayer, prayer, a person who prayed consistently for the needs of others from a room that was walled off. They would have kind of closed the door and uh, walled it in. And there was a little tiny window where she would have been fed, where she could have listened to the services. There was a window to the outdoors where she probably had people come to her, much like we might to a spiritual director or a counselor. And so she wasn't um, isolated from the problems and pains of the world, but she didn't, uh, go anywhere. She was there to, um, I can't think of a better word, to really uh, anchor and to hold fast. And that's one of the things I've heard other um, religious monks, nuns say that for some of them, particularly in the quieter orders, they understand that their job is to um, pray so that the world won't spin out of control, mm-hmm. that their prayers are the anchors mm-hmm. to a world where other people are called to a more active life. So she um, had the, took the vow of stability of staying right there in one place and offering up all of her energies um, for that congregation and to her relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this little room, you can walk in there now. It's a little chapel. So but- I, I want to know what it felt like in that room. What, what, how did you feel in your body in that room? Were you able to go into that space? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we arrived, they had just finished a service and we had arrived a little late. It's a hard to find out of the way church. There's no big neon signs. So you have to know where you're going. 
And so we sat out in the sanctuary and then came in afterwards when we were the only ones there. And um, it's, it's beautiful. It's sort of slightly underground. Uh, so it feels a little um, cozy in there. But what I felt was uh, both her presence, but more than that, it's all the people who have prayed there over the centuries since. I really felt connected to the larger community of people who have been inspired by her. You know, sometimes, um, oftentimes when I go to places like sacred places, um, I almost feel personally, I feel emotional because I can feel that sense of, um, of prayerfulness or, or just that good intention around it. It's almost like if you, you know, um, go somewhere that doesn't have, that doesn't have that vibe, I kind of have a different reaction, but, um, I think it was Henry Nowlin who said that when he traveled, he would often go into churches to pray because so many others had prayed before him that he could easily just get right into that groove, that it was, it was effortless. Um, and, and so places like that do, I think, hold that energy or that sensation. And that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, you, you know, you season a, a, a pan or something, right? Mm-hmm. Time there's sort of a, it's ready for cooking. I mean, I think that's sort of what the, 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 these places are sacred and, and seasoned with the prayers and the beliefs and the steadfastness and the sorrow. Yeah. You know, yes. A place like that. And it's not like you're bouncing around, like what a happy place. It's like, this is a really deeply human place where people have brought their joys and their sorrows. Sacred, it's sacred ground. Like, right. Kind of, and it's very small. So it was kind of like a, a shelter or a womb-like room where you could bring that. And what called you to go there? Oh, I think it's curiosity. And I think um, also most any of us that have studied the um, spiritual tradition, pilgrimage becomes one of the practices um, to walk where others have walked. Uh, Over the centuries, of course, people have gone to Jerusalem, they've walked the Camino to Santiago. And for me, I wanted to go to some of the places where some of the women who um, really broke uh, gender barriers, as well as um, left a spiritual legacy. I wanted to go and walk there. It's one of the things I encourage my students to do is to do all the book stuff and then go someplace and then add a layer to your learning. Because as you mentioned, what your body teaches you, mm-hmm. seeing, I mean, when you walk through the English um villages of Norwich, and I didn't really realize, I mean, the map told me this was a seaport, but to realize all of the boats that were coming from the continent of Europe and landing just within steps of where her anchorage was, she was not in some secluded little village. She was at a seaport where people were coming and going and bringing goods and had one of the largest markets. So here she was anchoring this village, this church life, um, while the whole world came and went, the world of, of her time. I couldn't have known that from reading. I mean, it, I suppose I could have learned it if I was ready to ask those questions, but I didn't know what questions to ask because all of my senses weren't engaged. Mm. What so a great I, advice for people who are seekers um, to not only, you know, I mean, you can probably see my bookshelf behind me and I thin it out from time to time. But, and one of my kids actually color-coded all my books. They thought that would be fun. I guess that's, a, that's a thing now. Um, but I, I, I drink in all that knowledge, you know, I'm so thirsty for it and I love reading and reading, but to go and have that physical experience and to walk um, where, you know, somebody like this has, has walked or lived before is it takes it to a, um, it sounds like a whole different, um, you know, bodily level. Um, and that you get to see the sights and sounds and smells and, and feel, you know, even though times are different, it's still the same place. It is. And you see whether or not that there is a, um, a local memory to hear the current priest mm-hmm. of that uh, church, which is now a part of the Church of England, um, to hear him talk about Julian and then say, I need to go. I have a pastoral care call to make. Uh, one of our members is ill and probably won't live long. Mm-hmm. Well, to see him engaged in that sort of care for 
the, those who are in need in his congregation while talking about Julian, all of a sudden the purposes that she lived for are not abstractions. Mm -hmm. mm, I love that. Yeah, but there's this, there's this um, icon at the front of the church. And I looked at a picture earlier today um, of Julian and it has sort of a, a line through it, not a, it's a visual line. It's not like a drawn line. Mm -hmm. But there's a little picture of Jesus at the top, and then there's a picture of her hazelnut because she talked about all of the world being contained in a something as small as a little hazelnut. And then it goes through uh, a scroll, which is like uh, the the Bible, and then it goes to the church. So it goes through her body, this line, and so you see that her way of life was anchored in her faith, uh, her Christian faith and that she understood it in her own times through contemplation of a small thing like a hazelnut, but it's connected to that little parish church and that's the same church that she was anchored in. So the um, icon, the icon writer, icon writer um, really captured that she was just one small person who lived out this way of life that predated her and post dated her, but she left this beautiful legacy of how to live with, um, connection with God, intention for the sake of others. Mm -hmm. Not that she could be remembered as a great writer, but she did this to share what she had learned about God and um, life for the sake of those who came to knock on her doors. She probably didn't have Pam and Rebecca in mind, but um, the extension of a life lived that way will overflow. Mm -hmm. This one lasts without even her name on it, right? For centuries and centuries. Yeah, it's really incredible. I, I was reading that uh, her work is um, that she's one of the first uh, women to be published in English in writing. That's right. That's right. It, it, not just spiritual writers, but period. But period. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah. do people know that? I wonder. And um, and I also wonder, like, what was the foot traffic like when you were there? I mean, are people are others interested or there is a little, in the back of the church, there is a, a little bowl where you can take a hazelnut. And I had one in my hand that I took from that uh, bowl a couple years ago. And there's also a um, guest book. So people uh, leave a prayer that they would like. There's a little group of people, small group, probably six, 10 people that meet regularly to pray there. Okay. They'll pray for you. And as you look through that book, people from all over the world in, during the month that I was there. Now it's not like, as I said, it's not like Disney world or something. Yeah. It's a small constant trickle. And next to the church, there is a, a center, a little gift shop and a little center where um, educational things in the spirit of Julian take place. Uh, it wasn't operational the day that I was there. So I didn't get to go in, but there are sort of, a, there is sort of a, a, a bit of a legacy group that keeps her memory and her um, writings vital there. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the hazelnut that you have in your hand. Why was, what is, what was her vision with the hazelnut or what was her experience with God and the hazelnut? And I think what, you know, what we would say today, she had sort of a, a spiritual science, uh, spiritually scientific mind in some ways, in that she recognized by holding the hazelnut in her hand, she said that um, all of the world can be contained here. And I think it's one of the great spiritual lessons. We often are scanning the horizon for wisdom and for truth. And she would say, focus in on what's right in front of you. And in this case, it's a hazelnut. And she said that um, this little um, part of creation, she said, God loves it, uh, God made it, and God sustains it. And so uh, with God made it, she's talking about God as the creator. Mm -hmm. and, uh, God loves it as God, the one who uh, sustains us. And, um, you know, she's, she's thinking theologically about a little thing. And it's sort of like, as if, if God can show all of that through just contemplating and taking time with a um, little thing that you probably walk by, kick with your foot, not paying any attention to. If we can learn all that from honing in on one small little nut, then uh, what else can we learn by honing in on the details of our own lives, what God might be saying to us, 
in her case, her visions. Um, you know, we all might have a dream and either pay attention to it or just pass it on. Now, I think she was different in that she was a visionary and we're all not that. But she attended to it. Mm. She thought about it. Do you think that perhaps this time in the world and, um, you know, the current circumstances of, you know, we're 10 months into a pandemic and that we have, perhaps we've all been invited to look at our lives like the hazelnut, you know, that they, we can't necessarily run off in a way to all these places, but we're faced with looking at our own little lives with, with different eyes. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, Pam, you probably have heard this a thousand times as I have when you're somebody who studies and tries to drink in from the spiritual traditions writ large, that one of the things that everyone talks about is it starts with paying attention Mm -hmm. and being present. So if you pay attention to whatever is in your present, whether it's a little nut or whether it's your life during COVID, um, that's where we connect with the divine in the present moment when we're paying attention. And so I do think COVID has called us all to a sense of um, stability. That's the way they would have said it in earlier centuries. And taking a, 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 we didn't choose a vow of stability, but we were (laughs) told to shelter in place or to to, uh, stay in place, um, stay at home. And so, yeah, there is something in that, that I think is a, can be a positive if we don't take the opportunity to ask, what am I learning? What does solitude mean for me? What does this call? And, you know, for me, and I think for many of us, we've, we've had more time with family. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful, good thing. Uh, you know, I think that that, I, I mean, I, I'm always one to look for the beauty in things or, or if I'm called to be somewhere, I try not to resist because when I resist, the current circumstances, then I end up, you know, banging my head against the wall and feeling frustrated. And, um, and so embracing where I am, I feel like puts me much more at ease. But, you know, one of my favorite memories is driving down the street at noon and seeing a father and son out for a walk and laughing and the son's looking up at the dad. And I thought, well, you would never see that in my town on a on a Tuesday afternoon. And, so there is beauty in that connectedness that we were, you know, invited to have with people if we could. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that are that may may live alone, but um, there was an invitation to that being in community and sort of seeing that, you know, that hazelnut that's right in front of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the exercises I often have students do is sort of a a form of paying attention. I send them out on our campus, which is a beautiful coastal, right on the beach uh, kind of campus, but I send them out and say, bring back um, something that you can hold in your hand. Or if it's a creature that you don't want to pick up, just sit there and sort of give them some instructions to pay attention. And they come back and say, oh, I didn't know behind my dorm room, there is a little nest. And here's what the birds saw. Uh, are doing and this is what you know is happening in that nest and this is what that said to me they write these beautiful reflections and it's when I realized they're not just kids staring at me and wishing they were on their phone there's actually a lot going on there but when they're forced uh, and taught I hope to pay attention to something oh my goodness the beauty And sometimes they tell me years later, they remember the leaf they looked at or the day that they meditated on the waves. And so, uh, or the snowy owl that they found uh, in the bushes behind their their dorm. And so you begin to see that for all of us, that's a very human thing to pay attention to something small and usually something created, right? It's not so easy to pick up a a broken headphone, but... (laughs) Something. You know, what's interesting too that, that I would add um, to what you just said is that you sent them out into nature. Yes. And I find that so often um, people connect to God, their higher power, their sacred, you know, whatever that is for them in nature. And I do believe that the invitation this past year, um, you're in California and sunny California, and I'm not, but I was out in nature a lot. Um, and, and that puts me in all of things. And there's this super awareness of, oh, oh, wow, there's, there's, you know, there's the bald eagle or, or whatever is in, 
you know, comes across my path. So um, word awe. I mean, to not to not think about I mean, I often do that with students too. is say, what was the last time? When was the last time you experienced awe? Mm-hmm. And um, that is a doorway, a gateway. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, I often ask people, you know, where did you see beauty today? Because mm-hmm. we don't often ask ourselves that. But I, anyway, I feel like these times um, that we can take some of Julian and and bring her into the now um, in these ways. Um, so her work is known um, as the showings, and it, um, she describes the visions that she received from God. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, if you read the showings, you know, many times people want to go and read them and they're, they have beauty to them um, and they're remarkably beautiful, but she's also talking about suffering a lot. Mm-hmm. And because of her Christian um, uh, tradition and times, she talks a lot about um, the suffering of Jesus and the, the blood of Jesus and the broken body and all of that. And she's trying to make sense of her own suffering and divine love in how they come together. Did, and what, can I just interrupt for one second? Did she invite that suffering? Didn't she? And Or is that not true? Like that she asked to suffer so greatly that she would? She was willing. And it's always hard to know, is she willing uh, by inviting it in? Or is that a part of her life that has, has occurred before and she's welcoming it, not as this is the one thing I want, but I welcome it. Because I think of um, Mother Teresa had this group called the co-workers of Mother Teresa uh, in the 20th century. And these were people who offered their suffering uh, through prayer um, on behalf of those who were active in ministry outside in the world. So they were, tr- they were, they understood their suffering as a way of offering um sort of uh, suffering so that others wouldn't have to suffer and could be free to do good in the world. So I don't know if there's a direct connection to that, but that's the way I frame it. Okay, no, that's helpful. Yeah, there's an awful lot of these women mystics, and I would say uh, women in the 20th century who have wanted to either serve in pastoral ministry or something and the doors were closed to them, who have experienced physical suffering um, when you push that energy down and can't express that in some way, it often leads to physical suffering. And then is that offered up? I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and yeah, up that question. But that's how I frame it in my understanding. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. So you're, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say that one of the things that um, she does, which is uh, wonderful and often compelling for people is when she thinks about um, Jesus and Jesus's suffering, she begins to think about a mother being a mother. So she calls Jesus our mother. And she talks about um, the feminine dimension of God through Jesus. And so, you know, when I talk to students or they read things, they go, gosh, I thought people only talked about, you know, God in female terms in the 20th century post-feminism or during feminist movement. And it's like, no, <laughs> that she um, had this very human sense of uh, being uh, sheltered and cared for. And anyone who's been a, a mother of a newborn knows that it's both joyful and it's there is a suffering involved. There is. You give your body over uh, to the well-being of a, another being. And so she really framed the love of God in this willingness to suffer with, to give and nourish and and um, uh, step back so that the, the new life could come forward. And so she uses really remarkably beautiful and human images. You know, it's interesting as I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the sense of, um, you know, your little hazelnut having both joy and sorrow or sort of that yin and yang that there's both in, and it isn't that true for our lives that we have both, you know, really at all times. Um, and this little nut, while it's beautiful, for it to be really what it's supposed to be, it's supposed to crack wide open. <laughs> <laughs> a new uh, tree can um, emerge. Yeah. And so that's always, uh, the metaphor is it's beautiful in and of itself, but there is a purpose that requires the breaking open. What happens when people break open? Oh, I don't know. We <laughs> we get uh, broken and sometimes a little bit of both along the way. Yeah. But that transformation is, is possible. And there, um, you know, I often say that um, 
your spiritual work can make you temporarily uncomfortable, but once you get through it, will. it yeah, and it will, yeah. yeah. But once we get through it, that there's this freedom uh, or sense of growth on the other side that we're changed, you know, for for the better or closer to God in in some ways. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Those processes. I think that's one of the reasons when we're close to nature. Um, we see that nature is so incredibly beautiful, but there is uh, uh, dying and smelly and uh, fertilizing and <laughs> beautiful new growth. All of those things are sort of always operational when you're outside paying attention. And so I think in our humanness, at least I do, I often want to just look at the orange fully formed. It's orange season in, in San Diego. Yeah. And you know, Megan, my daughter said the other day when we pulled some off the tree, she says, why are they all so dirty? <laughs> it's like, because growing, you know, there's spiders and bugs and, you know, all sorts of dirt and everything. So this beautiful fruit that we eat, you know, it's dirty and messy when it comes off the tree. And, you know, and that's have- important to, to, to name, to say that, you know, I, I remember when we went into the pandemic, it was, you know, winter and then spring here on the East Coast awakened. And there was, you know, I was in the mountains and there were, you know, little fox kits and, you know, all all sorts of, you know, birds and things were coming to life and everything turned green and it gave you hope. And then I remember talking to my spiritual director about that. And she said, I wonder how people are going to feel in the fall as we move into the rest of the cycle of this, you know, into, fall with with all that comes with that but then there's always that hope of of that cycle continuing itself with with new life again um absolutely um sometimes winter is harder and spring feels like a miracle but spring can't happen without without with exactly without the dirty orange (laughs) without the dark uh the dark gestational period Yeah. yeah yeah um so can you describe what um a little bit more about um um, Julian's life, um, would you, would you say, and maybe you touched on this a little bit, that she was a spiritual director, like of, of her time. I mean, I don't know when the word, uh, maybe you know this, but when the word spiritual director or spiritual guide, I mean, I know people have been guiding others in this capacity since the beginning of time. I don't know when that exact term came around, but in some of my reading about her, they called her a spiritual director. Yeah, I think you could certainly call her that. In her terms, I think they would have just called her an anchoress. Yeah. Right? Because that meant something to them. That doesn't mean anything to us. Um, the t- spiritual direction, having a spiritual mother or spiritual father goes back to the early monastics and in the third century. And they, that's what they would have called usually. Or in the later period, they would have talked about a novice master or a um, abbot or abbess there was this, this, this um, sense that to grow in the spiritual life, you needed to submit your life to somebody else who would guide and direct. We're not very good at submission <laughs> in the 21st century U.S., but the idea that um, you, you gave your life over to a father or a mother or a, um, an elder in the faith who would guide you. Yeah. You were ready to take your, your final vows or to find your place of service. Um, it's, it's a long, beautiful tradition. Yeah. Comes from a variety of places with a variety of. So how could somebody who is listening, who doesn't know what a spiritual director is, or is curious about it, how would you explain, you know, what, what that means, um, to have a companion, um, you know, what, what does that look like? Yeah. The way I think about it is that, um, when you look for a spiritual director, you look for someone who's probably a little farther ahead on the path than you, or who's been through enough um, suffering um, or enough uh, of life to have wisdom. And then when you find that person, and usually it's found through prayer or just this sort of wonderful serendipity, it's not sort of like um, looking on Yelp. <laughs> There's really not that the kind of thing. But then it's that spiritual director, in my view, it's somebody who um, clears their life for a while um, regularly so that you can bring yourself and your 
questions about faith or your questions about existence or loss or whatever to that person. And they just open up their uh, lives to put your life at the center and, and be an onlooker with you to see hmm, what's going on here. Where's the divine foot mm-hmm. more going on than you can see. And a spiritual director office offers what I call friendly distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look at the things that are most near, dear, close, hard for you, but with the, uh, a friendly distance that they're there to help you see what you can't see or to stay with what you don't want to stay with or to, you know, pray with you around things that you don't even want to pray about. Um, or, you don't, or you don't know how. <laughs> don't know how, exactly. And then they hold you in prayer um, when you're not together or hold you up in uh, the divine light or whatever um, practice that someone might do uh, in order to, to um, be your friend, but in a different kind of friendship. Spiritual friendship, you often might not even know what the other person likes to do in their free time, or um, you never go to the movies together, or rarely. I don't do that with my spiritual directors or spiritual directees. No. But you have one of the most intimate relationships there is because you talk about the deeper matters with somebody who's got a good vocabulary for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, and I'm asking all this, and obviously I'm a spiritual director, and I know the answer to a lot of what you said, but so many things were so important. Um, and especially about um, when you first started to describe a spiritual director, and before you said wisdom, um, you used a different word, and and um, you said that they are somebody who who has suffered. I don't know if that's the word you used, but I did. Um, and I think that's so important because in in order to help others grow or to companion them, we also need to have had life, you know, experiences both good and bad. Um, and uh, I think that you know. A good spiritual director learns from their brokenness or their, you know, those things and can bring those and companion and sit with someone else who's in that, that same sort of, um, you know, I often think of alcoholics that, you know, an alcoholic would like to see another alcoholic for help because they've been in those shoes. And, and I feel that way with spiritual direction often is that, um, you know, if you can bring your past in a, in a, in a healthy way that you've also worked through your stuff that you can bring that. So I think that's just such an important part of it. Um, and then I also love that, you know, you said it's serendipity and I often, you know, if somebody's looking for a spiritual director, you just pray for one and, <laughs> and um, you know, and often they appear. And the other thing that you said about not knowing your spiritual director, my spiritual director is, um, is older and I really don't know a lot about her. It's so funny. Um, except for when I was with her yesterday and she said, she said, when we're done talking, can you help me with my computer? Which I thought was so cute. Um, her computer was frozen or something like that. And I think that's the most personal thing that she's ever shared. Um, but, and, and that's the beauty in it too, is that someone else, um, can sacrifice their time or, or the beauty of, of handing over this time that you can really focus on the other person and be with them in that way. And I just had that image of mother. I know spiritual direction isn't mothering, but I had that picture of what you were saying about how Julian was describing these showings. And it's sort of that same loving presence that you're in this sort of divine presence when you're with another and companioning them in yeah. some direction. Yeah, you know, and to recognize, I think the freedom in spiritual direction comes when you realize that it is God that's doing the showing to use um, Julian's language. But you, we often can't see something or we see it better if we describe it to somebody else. And so to have a companion on the spiritual journey is you, you have to describe and, and use words or uh, sit together and uh, allow just the space to um, give you something together that you then can unpack or talk about a little bit. So for those who are um, highly verbal and who find a companion in this uh, journey helpful, which I certainly have, it's been a a persistent reality in my life for decades. And I can't imagine not being involved and having a spiritual director. And that then overflows for many of us because others hear about it or seek us out or whatever. And so um, it's a beautiful thing. And I think for some people, um, 
spiritual guidance comes more uh, from a group of friends, uh, that it may be that their lives intersect uh, mm-hmm. more. And so it's not like it's just one thing. Yeah. You certainly be guided and loved by the mosaic of family and friends. And I think that's probably the most common. Yes. But there are, are times in life when either you're awakening to something or there, there's a call to it or that you've been, as you said, broken wide open mm-hmm. and some space to um, work on that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I didn't mean for the podcast to be about spiritual direction, but, <laughs> but I guess it's coming back to that. Um, uh, so did Julian's encounter with God, do you think, um, put things in perspective for her, you know, in her life? Did it give her, um, it sounds like much more focus. I do. I think it gave her focus. Um, I think she probably felt that, as most mystics do, if they're given a a vision, she also had a responsibility to share that uh, showing with others. It's sort of like an artist who has a a vision of a painting, unless they paint it so that Mm -hmm. they have to do it, but then others will gaze at it and learn from it as well. I think she probably um, needed to put it down. I don't know that she sought an audience beyond her local folks, but she had these people who came to her for wisdom. And so this was a part of it. She had a good theological mind. And, you know, at the time, what's a a woman with a good theological mind supposed to do about that, right? So writing was an option. She wouldn't have had too many other options. I did also read that it... She wrote twice, perhaps. I don't know if this is true. She wrote it and rewrote it. Yeah. And rewrote it 20 years later. So it sounds like there was definitely like this unfolding of the what she experienced. Um, yeah, it was pretty radical stuff. I mean, if, if most of us, if we had a, uh, what sometimes is called a Damascus moment or some sort of spiritual awakening, uh, trying to say, what was that? What I might say, uh, in the moment, what I might say 10 years later and what I might say 20 years later um, might have nuance to it or understanding that's different uh, because reflection upon things layer. Um, one of the practices, this wouldn't have been Julian necessarily, but one of the practices that I, I learned about through reading about um, Susanna and John Wesley, because that's the, the Wesleyan Methodist tradition is uh, where I come from. Um, they had this Puritan practice that when something big happened in your life, you went back and with your spiritual director or mentor, you re-narrated your story uh, with that in mind because something new has happened. So in some ways, I, I see that as Julian, 20 years later, whether she was nearing the end of her life, whether it was because of um, protracted illness or, or um, finishing uh, something, something happening in her life, to go back and revisit the big things, um, you know something different about them. Your perspective is deeper. And maybe that was, she also knew it was her, sort of her parting gift. Yeah. And so she wanted to re, re, re-narrate it, retell it. And she, I'm sure she had no idea her parting gift would ripple out and way, way into the future and into our conversation today. Mm-hmm. Do you think she knew she was a mystic? Probably. I think that there was more of a tradition of of understanding that there were people with special spiritual gifts. Um, And being a visionary in some ways in certain centuries was to be seen as a seer or someone with special wisdom and special knowledge. Today, if people see visions, we wonder if they are mentally ill Mm -hmm. or, you know, they're just being dramatic or something. Uh, but no, I think in her period of time, there would have been more of a category for her. So whether she was conscious of it, whether they sat around, they probably didn't do their Enneagram. So they yeah. probably, <laughs> right? um, but there would have been a category for her and she may have just. So you uh, think it was much more accepting to be, to have that label um, than, than it would be now. Well, I think there was, a, 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 it was assumed that there were people who were like that. Um, and so there would be a place for it. I think it's always a little scary. I mean, when you look at the way that um, 
women with visionary powers are treated that you know, throughout the centuries, they're sometimes seen as witches or as, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, as uh, their power coming from somewhere other than God, because it's unusual. Yeah. Any woman who stepped out of her place and was unusual uh, would have been scary to some. That may be why uh, the anchoress or the anchorite um, option, she wasn't the only one, but I, I, we don't know how common it was, wasn't super common. There weren't that many people who wanted to live in a small room and anchor, <laughs> anchor the world through prayer. But it may have been a way of safely uh, living out the life of a mystic. Mm. There may have been some piece to that as well. Yeah. Um, and what what would you say that she offers the modern reader? Like, what does she offer me in my life today? Well, I think um, one of the places in which people turn to Julian is one of the other sayings that's often quoted from her beyond this hazelnut is this this phrase, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well. Um, And while that sounds a little um, like a positivity thing, that's not what it is at all. She was offering people the assurance that um, no matter whether it's plague time, no matter whether it's political unrest time, no matter uh, whether uh, society is shifting in ways you don't quite know, because hers was doing all of that. Her times were doing all of that. She said, there is a foundation underneath all of that. But even if the things that you deem as ultimate at this moment, even if they fade away or, or transform or whatever, that there is all should be well at the center of things because love is there. And she said, all will be well because there is this divine anchor of God's love that she prayed with and connected to and that she understood was um, shown in this character of this maternal loving God um, that she described through the uh, vision of of Jesus's mother. She said that at the bottom of things, you know, sort of like we talk about when you get to um, rock bottom, Mm -hmm. get to rock bottom, the, the, the ground, the foundation holds, it will be well and love and flourishing uh, will be there because that's the nature of things. And that's, that's um, a deeply faithful vision. It's also one that we're all looking for quick answers or for, you know, who's going to know what's going to life is going to be like post pandemic. We don't know. And Julian would say, all will be well when we get there. And all will be well and all manner of things shall be well because the foundation uh, is love and the foundation. And I, I find that comforting. I mean, yeah. I don't know when the, when people are going to listen to the podcast, but, you know, there's crazy political happenings in, in the United States and, um, and we have the pandemic. I mean, there's just, and it sounds similar to her time. And those words are are bomb for me. You know, that, that comforts me because no matter what, that foundation of love is there. And that to me is, that's, that's my faith. I mean, that's. Yeah. And for me, I knew about Julian, but she became important to me during my um, daughter, who's now one of my daughters is um, a cancer survivor. And I just used that prayer, I'll be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well as my mantra during a time of chemotherapy and mm-hmm. running children's hospital and all of that. Because mentally, I couldn't see that it would all be well because mm-hmm. if she died, I was going to lose my mind. Uh, but at the same time, and she didn't. Mm-hmm. I always forget that I don't always say that. Um, but, but my mind said, I cannot deal with this. But Julian was saying, no matter what, the foundation of existence holds, even if you don't get things the way that you want them. Now, could I tell the story the same way if there had been a different outcome? I hope so. You know, I, I, I would say, I would say that you, that I would hope so too. And that I have talked to somebody who had your experience and, and it turned out differently. Um, And she would say that the foundation is still there. And that gives me hope. And that's the gift of Julian, you know, the woman who lived in this tiny little room uh, in a, in a small um, village on the seaside in 
England, north in central North England. And I think that's why we remember her, is that truth, the truths that she put forward, um, they still are true. She was touching into the um, deep, deep truths of things that we use in different language, we might say it differently, but it's still true. Yeah. Wow, what a, what a gift, what a blessing, and, um, and that uh, to know that all shall be well, <laughs> and to unpack her life a little bit in this way with, uh, with your knowledge and wisdom, I think has been um, really enlightening and needed very needed right now. And so I one of my favorite things to do, Pam, is when I travel and, you know, I'm not going anywhere now, but uh, even in my own location uh, to go looking for her, which is the way I tell my students go look for uh, women of faith who have lived lives, not unlike Julian, um, but go looking for her in your own backyard. And I've had students uh, find, you know, a statue here in San Diego or, uh, find out about the first woman doctor that ever lived here that as an extension of her faith, we have these wonderful um, agencies for children now. So there are these wonderful um, legacies of, of people. And because I teach women in the Christian tradition, they mostly are women. Yeah. Dug down deep and offered their hazelnut moments. And there are these sort of lasting legacies and these stories are everywhere, but we blow past them. And it's one of my intentions when I travel and now as I teach to not blow past them and to say, mm, I love that. Don't blow past them. Mm. No. And you know, I'm, I'm, this is on my, this is on my list now. I'm going to, I want to go visit. It's great to be able to sell. I, I want to, I want to be there. I want to see how it feels in my body to be in that yeah. place. And yeah. so you've inspired me, you know, when, when we can travel again to, um, to go out and have uh, those physical experiences in those important places in our history, in the world's history. Um, you know, they, they, we would have a different experience than just this head knowledge, but more of like this feeling or sense of being there. Yeah. And the cathedral in Norwich also yes. has a statue. And so there's the little village church and there's the cathedral. So there are, there are ways to do this traveling and not only, you know, enjoy the beauty of other places, but to, I, I think the phrase I used was don't blow, blow past the story of those who've lived there before. Especially the women. <laughs> there you go. Especially the women. Amen to all that. Thank you. Damn. I'm Pam Rotelli-Robertson, and you have been listening to Talking Joy, talks that help you realize your value while creating authentic connections with others. For more information about our talk today or to get in touch, you can find us at TalkingJoy.org. And to keep the encouragement going, you can also follow Talking Joy on Instagram and Facebook. Simple, joyful, fun. Thanks for listening. This is Talking Joy.